Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Amaphidon. Thanks for tuning in. As we ring in the new year, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts introduces a historic group of leaders, all female, including Governor Maura Healey. Her inauguration on Thursday was filled with energy and hope for the future. But I support the Constitution of the United States. It was a proud day for Massachusetts as Maura Healey was sworn in as the 73rd governor of the state Thursday morning. The inauguration, marked by tradition in the House chamber, also signaled a new direction and many firsts. A Democrat governor returning to the helm after eight years of Republican leadership. The first woman governor in Massachusetts and first out lesbian governor in the country. Not to mention the first female executive team in the U.S. with the election of Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll. It was a feeling Healy thought all could relate to. Every one of us, every one of us is a first. You may be a first generation immigrant choosing Massachusetts as the foundation for your American dream. You may be the first in your family to go to college, the first in your neighborhood to start a business. In this state, we're all trailblazers. We're all leaders. That's why we live in Massachusetts. Now, what story will we write together? The new governor also spoke of immediate goals within her first 100 days, including the creation of a secretary of housing to create affordable housing for all and the country's first cabinet-level climate chief to meet climate goals. Now we must devote ourselves to cherishing and protecting our shared future and meeting the climate crisis. Sworn in Lieutenant Governor Driscoll shared her commitment to an inclusive state in her partnership with Healy. Governor Healy and I stand before you today with an immense amount of hope and gratitude. Buzzing with excitement, the chamber rose in applause repeatedly throughout the afternoon. Both optimistic and focused on the road ahead, the people's governor is ready to run with the ball in her court. In Massachusetts, we come together. We lift people up and we lead. Hi, Boston. It's the first week of a new year and happy new year to you. Hopefully we're going to be meeting a new you as well. We're down here in downtown Crossing asking people what they're leaving behind in 2022. Just positive energy for 2023. No arguing, no fighting. It, it's not worth it. Negativity and insecurities. Going to leave those all behind in 2022. My wife just got uh, retirement and uh, so we're both retired now and we're looking forward to having uh, many travels uh, in the next year and also a lot of visiting our family here in the U.S. I definitely hope to leave behind COVID-19 and I think we are all eager to embrace and get back to normal life and enjoy traveling, get back together with family and friends and not to worry about diseases anymore. And we stayed on the streets to ask residents about their opinions on the recent minimum wage increase in the Commonwealth. Take a look at what they said. Minimum wage workers in Massachusetts can feel relief knowing their income is increasing. The state regulated wage went up from $14.25 to $15 on January 1st. We asked Boston residents what they thought about the change and if they think it's enough. For the wage earners, 
I don't think it's enough. Not with the inflation, recessions, and primarily costs, rents, foods, everything. People with, you know, wives and kids, you know, they gotta work 24 hours a day, nine days a week, it seems. I think depending on where you live, if you're living in the cities, definitely, I don't think that's sufficient enough for, you know, a family to live a reasonable, decent life. With the minimum wage hitting $15, Governor Baker's 2018 yearly wage increase bill has come to an end. It's now up to the new administration to decide whether to raise it more. We asked one local resident, what more can we do? I'm fighting to um, improve uh, the better working condition for the families and also to continue uh, uniting, working together with the unions and the organization to increase the minimum salary. But I think that it is a collective, um, all people coming together to improve the quality of life that we want to accomplish. Moving on, National Signing Day is revered by student athletes across the country. A day when years of sacrifice and exceptional skills on the field catch the attention of top collegiate sport programs. For Division I football, that day is February 1st, when athletes sign letters of intent to universities that have been in their pursuit. For those ready to commit sooner, there's early signing day on December 21st. BNN News was there for the big day as two teens with Dorchester roots said yes. For high school football players Sharif Andrews and Takai Whitmore, their commitment to the sport was crystal clear when they signed letters of intent to continue their academic and football careers at Division I universities. It's been a long road for the standout varsity players filled with highlights. Andrews, a defensive tackle who has played for Wakefield High, Malden Catholic High School, and St. Thomas More School, will attend Maryland's largest historically black university, Morgan State. While Whitmore, a defensive corner who played at Boston Latin Academy before transferring to Dexter Southfield High, will attend Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. It's a dream come true for the teens, and their families are full of pride. Feeling great, excellent. It's you know it's good. It's, it, I think it's about time that some of my family, the family's mo moving on to to a HBCU uh, university college institute and um, doing doing something for for himself and, and 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 the family feels great about it. They're, everybody's involved in it, so um, I think it's it, it is a wonderful thing, you know for the community as well. He loves football. He eats, sleep, and breathe football. So he make me like football. And I love it for him. Football is a shared passion and family affair for the cousins who got their first taste of the game playing Pop Warner football for the Dorchester Eagles at six years old. At 19, their hard work has paid off. It was only fitting that they'd celebrate this moment in the neighborhood that started it all at Dorchester YMCA. Surrounded by the love of friends and family, the young men are ready for their next phase, which will be limitless thanks to their full scholarships. That's the best thing. That's what everyone dreams for. Not just us. Everyone dreams for that. Athlete or not. And to be able to play football and go to school for free, get the degree we want, that's, that's the most important part. That's, that's amazing. And the most thing I look forward to is really the season. That's, that's coming in less than a, 
less than seven months. That's it's coming real soon. So I'm really looking forward to the season. Just looking forward to the um, you know meeting new people, you know, you know finding my career path, uh, all that good stuff, and then you know just it means a lot. This was my biggest goal was. Uh, take stress off my parents without having to pay for school you know kind of I, I accomplished that so I feel really uh feel really good about myself and uh able like that was my way of uh, paying back my family for all the sacrifices they made you know it's kind of just the beginning of the journey you know still got a long way ahead so and they're grateful for the support of their loved ones which has fueled them so far the support is there for sure um it's like it's it's crazy you never know exactly how much support you have until you have something like this. I'm impressed with this turnout. I know the support's there, and then I know they're going to be with me forever, throughout college and wherever after that. Best of luck, Sharif and Takai. We'll be rooting for you. Aldo Witherspoon is the founder and CEO of the Witherspoon Institute. She's also a renowned producer who coordinated events as the director of public and private partnerships for the city of Boston for over 20 years. She's played a major role in the production and performances of numerous projects for the Obamas, Martin Luther King III, Patti LaBelle, and many more. She joined us in studio to discuss the decline of literacy in our students in the wake of the pandemic. Find out what she's doing to end the literacy crisis and promote black authors in our following conversation. We're talking about one of my favorite things, books. So to get us started, uh, would you mind sharing the inspiration behind Book Band Tour and how exactly it came together? So it started with my writing two books. I decided I was going to go into the foreway of, of writing books. And through that, I began to do some research around literacy and what books meant in our community, how to promote it, how to market it, and just to begin to understand what uh, books, in the context of books, you know, how it affected us. I am a poet and a playwright and a singer and a songwriter and a producer, but I didn't understand the world of books. Hmm. So through that, I began to do some research on my novel, AKA Spoon, and I was down in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I began to talk to various people around there, Keith Fletcher uh, being uh, chief among them. She is director of the state of Arkansas's Mosaic Templar Cultural Museum. Hmm. And so she said, oh, this is quite interesting what you're doing with your research around your father and so forth. You know, um, tell me a little bit more. Can I get a one pager on that? So that one page turned into 66 pages. And through learning about books, and it turned into literacy, and then it turned into a very pointed conversation, which is post-COVID learning crisis. Hmm. I said, hmm, what is that? Because as uh, the founder of the Witherspoon Institute, our focus is children from 6 to 18 years old. And so I'm always interested in you know, poetry, I'm always interested in playwriting and so forth. So this literacy thing really struck me. And I said, hmm, I think that we need to focus on this. We began to do research on it. And through that, we found uh, some documents uh, that was written by Thomas Kane. He is Harvard uh, professor of education policy, mm -hmm. um, as well as Bridget Long, who is the uh, dean of education at Harvard University. And they've been having this really deep conversation across the world, really, uh, about this post-COVID learning crisis and how it has affected our children. And so it, as it's been told, is like a tornado that has touched down in various different places. Mm -hmm. Some places it's very deep and disturbing and other places it didn't touch at all. So for instance, in Florida, they became lambasted on why did they keep going with their education, even though the federal mandate said don't do that. 
uh, they haven't been touched by the post-COVID learning crisis because they mm -hmm. kept going, whereas in these other places over the last two years have been very spotty training. As you might imagine at home, parents were over the learning. Some, place, some parents were better. Some weren't. Then the uh, Internet was better in places. Some had, you right. know, technical, you know, they had their laptops and all this type of stuff. So it just was very spotty across the board. But one of the things that the World Bank did was a study that if we don't catch these children up over the next couple of years, that whole generation is going to lose $17 trillion worth of income because of their lack of education. Because what Harvard is saying is if we don't fill the gap, the gap will begin to widen. And they say it goes along racial and economic lines. Wow. Okay. So you've, you've already touched on it uh, just now, the post-COVID learning crisis that we found ourselves, a pandemic exposing a lot of these weak areas, particularly our education system. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what are some of the long-term effects of illiteracy? How is it affecting our students, especially in this remote learning era that we found ourselves in? Well, literacy touches on five areas. Uh, it happens to go along health, employment, poverty, generational literacy, as well as crime. So what we know is when a person is illiterate or functionally illiterate, it begins to pull down different tenants that surround them in terms of elevating themselves in their community. And how bad exactly is the uh, learning crisis, the post-COVID learning crisis that we're finding ourselves in now? So what we know is that 21% of the adult population in America is illiterate and functionally illiterate. If these children don't catch up and become, uh, you know, literate, that could widen to 25, 30%, you know, in its eventuality. So part of the Boston Book Ban Tour, uh, it's going to launch January of 2023. You'll be visiting five cities, Boston, New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Little Rock. Can you talk about how you went about choosing these cities? So when we did the 66-page uh, report, we looked at 125 Black-owned bookstores across America because uh, one of the tenets that we wanted to do was to combine bookstores, uh, black ones in particular, um, libraries, as well as cultural uh, institutions. So that could be churches, that could be the AKAs, it could be um, the Boys and Girls Club. Mm -hmm. um, so that books that are in our area that are immediately surrounding our children, that we're all working in collaboration in terms of literacy. That's great. And what are some of the... Um what are some of the things that we can do to counteract low literacy rates or illiteracy? One of the things that we are doing is working with community-based organizations to either fortify the literacy issues or concerns or programs they currently have in place or to actually help them implement a program with universities that are in the community um, as well as other community-based organizations. That's great. And Book Ban Tour is just one of the many programs, uh, initiatives that are happening at the Witherspoon Institute. Uh, can you talk about some of the other programs that are, are happening there? Yes. So we teach leadership, etiquette, and arts development. We are focused on training the next generation of storytellers who sing, dance, act, direct, and produce. So we constantly have different projects going on in terms of particularly plays. 
the last two plays we did was called Unto This House, which was uh, produced with the Witherspoon Institute and my church, New Hope Baptist uh, Church, as well as Hibernian Hall. And we did that for three years um, leading up to the post uh, the pandemic. And then we also did another play, uh, which I was commissioned by the city of Boston to write, and it's called Wise. And it's a cross between Harry Potter and The Wiz. And so we are focused on doing the second act to it because the, the post-COVID crisis kind of took that off the rails. Um, so we're planning on focusing on the second act of that play uh, so that we can do the stage production of it. Because of COVID, we weren't able to do a stage production. So we're focused on getting that up and running. Oh, that's very exciting. <laughs> All right, so how can our BNN viewers learn more about the book band tour and support the work that's happening at the Witherspoon Institute? www.thewitherspooninstitute.org to learn more about our projects. You can also call us at 844-56-SPOON. All right, wonderful. Alder Witherspoon, CEO and founder of the Witherspoon Institute, thank you so much for your time here in the studio today. Thank you for having me, Faith. January is National Mentoring Month, and we were lucky to have Mark O'Donnell, President and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts. In our discussion, O'Donnell discusses the importance of having youth mentors, especially in our current state, the political and social landscape. Since the beginning of his involvement in 2011, the organization has more than doubled its service to kids and drove two of the most successful projects in its 70-year history. He emphasized the need for more mentors and shared the impact a big can have on a little. Enjoy. Get us started. Uh, can you share a little bit about the history of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts and the mission of the organization? Absolutely. You know, the mission nationally has been around for over 100 years. Here in eastern Massachusetts, we've been around for about 75 years now. And really, it's about taking youth in the community. Our footprint goes all the way up to, you know, Lynn, Lawrence, Lowell, all the way down to Cape Cod and the islands and all the way through the eastern seaboard. And we pair kids whose guardians sign them up because just in life, the more people you have in your, in your village, the more people you have around you, uh, the, the, you know, all the research shows the better you do. So a mom will call us up or a guardian and say, I, I'd love some help. I'd love to have a friend to help guide my child through life. And we pair those youth with adult mentors who are volunteers. And we also put in between a mass support spe specialist on our staff. Mm -hmm. And through that connection, uh, we hope that it's a lifelong friendship and a lifelong journey. And we do that for about 3,500 kids right now. Wow. And we just set out uh, as part of post-COVID strategic planning to, over the next five years, pair 10,000 kids with their hopefully forever mentor. I love that. It's a great ambition because it definitely takes a village to, to raise the youth. And can you talk more about the reach of the program and how it's improved the lives of the littles? Well, it's funny because I always say it improves everyone's life. It improves the, the guardian, the mom, uh, more and more grandparents are raising children as well. Even the big that signs up thinking they're doing something good, they gain so much more out of it. And so what I like to, to say is it's not everyone wants to see what's the final outcome, but it's what has been missing the last few years during COVID, during isolation, all of those fundamental development skills that kids are lacking now. And I think everyone sees how important those basic life skills are 
So first and foremost, what this organization does is put someone in your life that you could talk to that helps you through life lessons, that's a partner with the family. And just so you can gain those fundamental skills, instead of saying, where's high school and graduation, which our stats are amazing for those, but that's not why we do it. We do it because every kid needs someone in their corner. Everyone needs someone showing up for them. So first and foremost, what the little gets out of it is a champion on their side. Hmm. Wonderful. And uh, speaking more of that, what types of programs are offered through uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts? And what are the age ranges of the, of the youth that you service? In most of our programs, you start out about seven to 13 years old. And all of our mentors are one-to-one -one relationships. We have different ways we deliver the, the, the service, which could be on a college campus. It could be on a site, such as an elementary school. And then there's our traditional community-based program, which everyone's heard about, which is the traditional on Saturday, you get picked up or you meet up and you go do spend the day together a couple of times a month and you build that, that relationship that's wherever you want to go. And then we have a thing called Mentor 2.0, which is a program designed for high school age students. Hmm. And we pretty much partner with a high school like Madison Park, and we go in and almost every kid in that school gets a mentor. And that, and that program is designed to help those kids to have the advice and the mentorship through high school to career or job placement planning and hopefully beyond. So we have one program that fits in school, high school age kids, but the majority of our matches are in that seven to 13, one to one uh, programs. Amazing. And how can the community become involved in Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts? What types of mentors are you currently looking for? All types of mentors. But what we see is when you go after, like no one's, no one's, no kid needs one thing. Uh, but what, the two things that we know are really important right now, and it just so happens where if we hung a shingle outside, women volunteer at a clip of four times more uh, than men do. Mm. So we're always just, I think just women are nicer. And so, so I think that we're always saying to, to, to men who have time and who want to make a difference, we know that, that, that they do and they want to, we're always looking for male volunteers for our boys. Uh, that's always something we're after. And it's, it's something we're constantly seeking. The other is when you look at 10,000 kids over the next five years, there's a lot of, uh, not barriers, but there's a lot of, of, of communication skills, language barriers, geography. So we're looking at as many volunteers that speak as many languages as possible. Because communication in a mentoring relationship for the family and for the kid is key. So Spanish-speaking volunteers, Mandarin-speaking volunteers, we want to make sure that when these kids sign up, that we could take them. And we have kids throughout the entire eastern seaboard of Massachusetts. And we want to make sure if someone signs up that language does not become a barrier whether or not that kid gets a big or not. So over the years, Mark, I'm sure you've encountered many bigs and littles in your time at Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts. Uh, which of those stories and the people that you've met have impacted you most? Uh, there's so many. Uh, there's so many different stories from someone being a best man uh, or in, in someone's wedding, someone being part of the family. But the biggest that you just see when you first come to this organization is we have a long-standing board member. A lot of people in the community know when you think of Big Brothers Big Sisters, you think of Tim Dibble. And Tim Dibble was matched with his little Curtis, 
Uh, and that went on for years and years, spanning decades, mm -hmm. to the point where Curtis actually became adopted into the Tim Dibble's family. And to this day, when you think of Tim and Curtis, and Curtis is doing great things at Metco in, 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 in Massachusetts, but together they were just such a force for not every match is going to turn out to be an adopted family member, to be part of the family, to help raise your other kids and be part of your family. But what it could be is just that, uh, you know, it turns into love, it turns into real relationships. So I don't think you could come to this organization and not hear a story like Tim and Curtis and not be moved that you hope for all 3,500 or 10,000 kids, that that could be the final result. Mm, definitely. Mark O'Donnell, President and CEO of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts, thank you so much for your time and, and shedding light on uh, the incredible work happening with the organization. Thank you. And I just want to tell everyone that if you think about becoming a big, if you want to sign your child up for the program, emassbigs.org, just a great time of year during uh, National Mentoring Month to be part of the organization. And one more time for the people in the back, for more information to become a volunteer or to register your children, you can visit emassbigs.org. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And don't forget our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. To close out the night, we bring you a selection from last Thursday's 2022 Mayor's Cup Hockey Tournament Championship Games. The 12 all-day matches highlighted youth hockey teams throughout Boston. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon. I'll see you next Friday. And here are the Hawks. And a goal! Barbuto! Morgan Barbuto, son of the coach, was in the area. Also there was number 48. Let's take a look. Parkway absolutely fired up as there was a wrister from the top of that circle, that face-off circle. There was traffic in front, so the Dorchester Chiefs could not see where it was going or who was in front or who was tipping it or what was happening. But turned out simple. Puck was in the back of the net. It's 2-0 Parkway.